Listeners should be aware today's podcast may contain some spoilers. Welcome to Editors on Editing, the podcast in collaboration with American Cinema Editors and Pro Video Coalition. I'm Glenn Garland, and I'm joined by Peter Shibris. Peter has edited such powerful features as The King, War Machine, and Rover. Now he has edited one of the most thought-provoking and fascinating films of the year, Power of the Dog. Peter, I, I loved the film. It was just fantastic. I thought the editing was so beautifully calibrated. I thought you did a fantastic job. I was just really blown away by the film. Thanks. <laughs> Appreciate that. How did you get into editing? I was kind of searching for what to do. I was actually studying illustration at the time. And I kind of always knew I wanted to be in the film industry, but where I grew up didn't really feel like a real option. <laughs> so I kinda, I've got a marketing degree, believe it or not. So I kind of stumbled into it. A housemate of mine was making music videos and he kept on having a lot of trouble with editors. And one night he got an edit and hated it. And I just jumped on and the next day stopped everything else I was doing and just started cutting constantly for the next 15 years. <laughs> wow. And how did you make the transition to feature films? All the while I was cutting ads, which I still do in between films, I was cutting short films for um, young up-and-coming filmmakers. So I never just did one and not the other. I, I was constantly doing both at the same time. A couple did really well and went to festivals, and then that led to my first feature, Hail, which I think I'd only been cutting for four years at that stage. So it was like a big learning curve. Ads can teach you a lot, but there's not really a lot of dialogue in ads. <laughs> so I, I found that actually was where I was kind of the greenest. And it's kind of funny because dialogue scenes are like literally my favorite thing to cut these days. But I remember that was, I need to get, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> to get better at this. <laughs> so I spent a lot of time studying some great editors' dialogue scenes. I find that cutting dialogue is very musical because the way people talk, the rhythms is musical. And so yeah. you could probably use a lot of what you've learned in music videos to get that rhythm, to understand choreography, to cut it like a dance. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when you've got characters with great intrinsic rhythms in their dialogue. There's certain characters that are just so fun to cut because of the way they speak. Having cut so many different types of things, I find that, you know, using all the same muscles, regardless of what genre you're in or even what form you're cutting. It's also just like actors always have such great faces and kind of give you such great little nuances and beats. In this film, especially, you just have four brilliant actors and they're all firing on all levels and trying to figure out what not to use was probably part of the battle. We were um, incredibly blessed you just feel in the dailies, like how in the zone everyone was, even though we had like a giant break in the middle and just when everyone got back, I felt like it was even at a higher level again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I thought that that was interesting because I heard Jane Campion talk a little bit and she was talking about how when COVID happened, she was worried that the film might not get back on its feet because who knew how long it was going to take and whether these actors were going to have other commitments and everything shut down. But then she looked at a lot of the footage and that really informed how she was going to continue after COVID. And she felt like it was one of the best things for the film. Yeah, totally. I mean, 
kind of an amazing blessing in a way. All the um, learnings between the first shoot and the second shoot improved the film drastically. Were you cutting during the break? We were going to cut the whole time when we put it together and realised how much was actually missing. It kind of felt like we can't cut a film with so much missing. It just felt like a waste of time. I actually popped the whole thing together for Jane and just put slugs in for each scene that was missing and it was the worst way to watch a first assemble. <laughs> it really was scary. But there were things that really like were kind of amazing learnings. Well, one thing that Jane mentioned was at the end he was going to have a paper flower and instead it became the rope. And that was informed, she said, because of the whole COVID thing. She's like, no, with the rope, is that's the key. Totally, that was another one. I mean, there's a, there a bunch actually. Even like the camera style, it wasn't that much handheld in the first shoot, but the moments we did have of handheld, it was really getting us closer to the characters in a less formal kind of way and just like, let mm-hmm. you kind of really get in. So it was a discovery that, oh, okay, this is a really lovely kind of language. Cool. And then when she finished shooting, did she come and work with you or was it remote? It was remote to begin with. I had a baby in between the two shoots. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you, my first. So I needed to stay home for a little bit longer. I met Jane in New Zealand because New Zealand had no COVID at the time. Australia did, which is where we were supposed to cut. So I ended up going to New Zealand, but there was probably like four weeks of Evercast sessions, two of those weeks in hotel quarantine. <laughs> it's just mm-hmm. a very weird way to start working because this is my first film with Jane. Yeah, how did you two end up working with each other? She is quite good friends with Dave Misho, who I've cut The King with and The Rover Mm -hmm. and War Machine. I remember she was at the premiere of um, The King. And then I got an email and did a meeting on it. It was a really long meeting. It felt good and easy. Kind of went through a bunch of lookbooks and talked about the tension of the script and where we needed to be focused and also just about making sure that I was a really hard worker that wouldn't let it go till it was finished. How would you describe Jane's process in the editing room? Yeah, she's a great editor and she's incredibly experienced. I'm a new school editor, I guess. You know, I I started on computers. I don't know if that informs the way she works, but she's very good at just letting things rest. She will kind of work on a scene quite intensely, get it to a place where we're like, okay, I think we've made a bunch of progress. And then we just don't watch it. Like Mm. she won't even want to watch it back. And you always just let things rest and you come back and watch it all in one play out. Interesting. Yeah, so she kind of keeps it as fresh as she can for us in the room. There's a real structure to the way she works. And when you said she'd let it rest, how long would... We'd usually get through a full pass. So you'd be kind of working in a full pass and then watch it down and work on a full pass and watch it down. And we'd get through passes pretty quick working that way. First cut probably took about maybe six weeks. Maybe the first cut took a little longer because Jane really loves to... We watch every second of the dailies for every scene and really like meticulously make selects. Jane doesn't shoot that much either, which makes it a lot easier. On other films I've cut, you might have eight hours of dailies for one scene, which kind mm-hmm. of would slow down the first cut quite a lot if you watched every single second. So yeah, the first cut took a little longer, maybe seven weeks, but then after that, two weeks, two weeks, and then down to one week towards the end. So you'd mm-hmm. be watching it quite regularly by the end. Cool. I want to try to take some of those learnings because I felt it was a great way to really feel the film and make bigger structural and story decisions, which sometimes you can get a little lost in the process. Sure. Uh, so at the beginning, there's some voiceover 
And Jane said that they had had Cody say something else and then she changed it. Was that the way it was scripted? What was the choice to have VO at the beginning? I remember Jane called me, I think a day after the shoot, with this idea of Peter voiced in the very beginning. And then we didn't talk about it again for a long, long time. I remember we got to a certain point in the cut where we felt like, okay, we finally got the opening moving how we want it to move. And then we both came in after a weekend and said, I think it's time to try that that idea. But we didn't know what it actually was going to be. Well, the first thing we tried was uh, Pete talking about his philosophy on life. It was kind of a bit more uh, philosophical and a little more like a tone poem or something, kind of more. And was that sort of ad-libbed or was that something that Jane had written and then he memorized or? Yeah, Jane wrote it and then Cody ad-libbed on it in character because he's quite great at that. We had it on there for a while and it used to be quite a lot longer. It used to trail all the way over to the opening montage of the Cowboys working and we kind of played it down quite a few times and we watched it with some people and we realized that it was too airy. It wasn't staying with people. It wasn't a strong enough statement that had the impact that we'd hoped, sure. which was to really plant him at the very front of the film. Because we really realized like the first few minutes of the film were about Phil and George, but we really wanted audiences to know very early on that there was a whole different flavor to the film. So that was That's really interesting. The, And then, yeah, it became our first clue as to the ending in a way. It's interesting that she had that instinct because at the beginning, Phil and George, the way that they're established is so economical. There's so much power in those scenes and the way that they relate to each other that you feel like it is about them, but you hear this voice that is not either one of them. So I think that's very clever. Yeah, that was the whole idea. Actually, the final voiceover didn't get written till the day before the mix. And the first time I heard it, I was like, okay, yeah, it's going to stay there. (laughs) It's not going to change. And it was really short as well and punchy. Tell me about creating the beginning, because you really establish George and Phil as such different characters, and there's such love and hate between the two of them. (laughs) The film started with the castration scene. And then there was a whole another scene that came off that scene, which was the start of that conversation they're having in the bath. Where we jumped into the bath was the second part of the conversation. Mm. So that was really tricky to get the tone of that first conversation just right, that you felt, okay, there's a lot of love here, but also these brothers are in, they're heading in very different directions. Benedict, we just did a little bit of ADR to soften his dialogue, just a touch. So it was kind of, a real trick to get all that information across without having to show any backstory. Yeah, (laughs) just immediately he's calling him Fatso and George isn't fighting back and Phil's just full of this visceralness. This has been going on for years and years and George has his coping mechanisms. (laughs) 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 To ignore him, basically. To ignore him and just let it slide off, which has probably been going on for the last 40 years of their relationship. (laughs) Yeah. And it's interesting because Benedict Cumberpatch's character, Phil, he's like an onion. You have a point of view of who he is, and it just keeps slightly changing, and you start seeing that he's such a multi-layered human being, and it's really fascinating to see all those layers get peeled apart. I remember reading the script and thinking the same thing. The performance from Benedict was incredible, but we did have to do quite a lot of shaping That swimming scene where he's naked and he's kind of putting mud on himself, that was attached to a whole other scene where um, he went into the same cubby that Pete 
Peter goes into later with the magazines and he was kind of in there looking at those magazines and that, that came at the end of the first act and the first time we watched it down it felt really reductive of his character to reveal mm. that so soon in the film it just felt really like a simplification of who he is so we essentially got rid of the magazines altogether but we kept the crawling through the sticks so we knew where we were when Peter arrived later and we paired it with the polishing of Bronco Henry's saddle after Rose and George arrived because we felt like, okay, these are similar emotions. So that was like a big move that really just helped slowly get to know Phil because we've got that scene upstairs where he's looking for George in the hallway and he's lonely and he's calling out for George. And that was a scene that kind of got notes early on when it wasn't quite in shape yet. It's like that's, that would be an easy lift because <laughs> it's that kind of scene where it's like, ah, oh, nothing's really happening. But it was kind of those scenes that that's the first clue that he's actually really fragile. When you say that it was going to maybe go, I feel like that was such an important scene for me because I felt like he was such an alpha male and because George isn't there. He seems very fragile yeah. and lonely and he doesn't know what to do with himself. I feel like there's quite a bit of power in that scene. Totally. Well, we did too, luckily, and we retained it. But, you know, those early stages of cuts when you start getting notes and everything's a little out of whack and so easy to <laughs> absolutely you know, go too far. But then shifting the next time we really enter that space with Phil later and just really letting it slowly unfold rather than giving it all to the audience too early was really the trick. And there was lots of that throughout, just calibrating and seeing how much we could get into that world. So when you talk about this scene being moved here and that scene being moved here and how emotionally they relate to each other, it reminds me how this film feels very poetic. It has a very lyrical nature to it. It, it feels like emotion was dictating how it was being shaped. That's something that Jane does so well. Yeah, you know, Jane's work is so human. It's all about getting in the skin of characters and getting to know them in a sense, in a, in a way that often is quite rare. A lot of that was some structural things, but then a lot of it was just about like those close-ups we picked up in the start of the second shoot and just like being able to cut in a way that you could kind of get Phil's emotion in the way that he touched things. So it was like mm. just about being really sensitive to that kind of material and find a way to just visually communicate that there's another layer to this man. There's an emotional layer. There's a lover there. There's a sensuality there that we haven't seen yet. But a lot of that's reactionary and a lot of that's just being attuned to the atmosphere of the footage. And Johnny Greenwood's music was very helpful in that regard as well. I wanted to talk about when Benedict Phil is rubbing the scarf on his body there was something that Jane said, which I thought was really interesting. In rehearsal, Benedict hated the scarf. And <laughs> yeah. uh, she was like, I want you to love that scarf. You have to love this scarf. Yeah, I mean, I did not get a sense of that at all watching the dailies. It looked like love from the beginning to me. Really, for me, it was about finding those five seconds, ten seconds, three seconds. The camera's just moving the right way with the right movement where something magic happens and the light was right and the wind picked the scarf up in the right way. You know, but there was hours. <laughs> I feel like there was hours of that stuff, which is really mm. weird dailies to watch silent, you know. And when you have all that footage... Do you create a select reel and then from that select reel you create another select reel? How, how do you yeah. approach something like that? 
I like to use markers just so I can kind of watch it on a, on a run and not stop. So I kind of use gold, silver, and bronze. Like, this is my favorite. This is pretty good. This Definitely watch this again. Not sure how I feel about it yet. I like to keep everything in longer reels and not break it up too much unless mm-hmm. I'm cutting because I feel like it was a Jill Bilcock interview way back in the olden days <laughs> before my time like everything would be in a reel so you'd always be maybe it was Walter Murch it was a legendary editor you know everything was in a reel and to get somewhere you'd have to go through it all and that kind of really stayed with me where I'm just always scrolling through everything uh, very quickly almost like having these cam rolls yeah so that's why I kind of started using the marker thing when I was looking for something, I would be looking for that, but I'd also see what's right before it and what's right after it. Just as a constant reminder, there's a whole lot of stuff we can be using here. I don't have to use the thing that I first liked. You know, you've learned the film and the film's asking for something and maybe you weren't quite thinking of that the first time you watched it. So I, that's the way I like to work, where I'm constantly reminded of other bits and things can jump out. And then from there, I just start pulling out my favorite bits and just start playing, really, just like in Mm -hmm. a really fun way and just... With music or without music? That one, I went for music straight away because it just felt like this is definitely going to be a musical sequence. I often work with music to begin with and then take the music off or put something completely different on, like change the music so I'm not cutting to a particular track. Unless it's the actual music, <laughs> to not to not get sucked into just cutting a music video, essentially. Sure. Um, I often find when you get a cut right, it kind of can work with just about any music. You know, it doesn't. Yeah, it's got its own rhythm. It's kind of interesting how you can put different pieces of music to something that you've cut, and if it's got the right rhythm, it almost always hits in these a different ways and it might not even be the right piece of music and you might realize that very quickly but you'll realize it worked really well in that section and it really hit there it's really fascinating it is kind of feel like that's when you know you're hitting like a good rhythm where it's got its own musicality to it or something i don't actually mind cutting to music early on i know that's kind of like every book i've ever read on editing is like cut without music (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I think it, it just varies. I think that they probably say that because music can be a crutch. Yeah, absolutely. Everything always does play better with music. So it's important when you're playing stuff with music to then take that music off and try to make it work without music because yeah. music does hide imperfections. But at the same time, if you know that, I don't see any reason not to cut with music. I guess it's all, you know, personal preference. And it's true. You definitely don't want to rely on music. (laughs) That's for sure. I always found that quite interesting because I'm kind of pretty self-taught. Like I never really assisted a feature editor or anything like that. So it's kind of just made it all up the way I like to do it. (laughs) Yeah, but it sounds like you've studied other editors and you've listened to them and you've... Research. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's interesting when you speak about the uh, inserts and the close-ups because sometimes that can feel very inserty, but here the inserts had such weight to them. They didn't feel like thrown away shots. They felt important. They felt like they were clues. Yeah, totally. We only use them when we think they are that. We were really strict. You know, everything is kind of connected to an emotion and, and nothing's just like a great-looking shot. 
Even yeah. we had like so many amazing landscapes and textural grass shots and this and that. And that was just because it, it had to be connected to the characters. It had to be connected to the emotion that was being felt by uh, the characters in the audience at that moment. Yeah, totally. It was always either as a way to set up a scene or to allow an emotion to travel into a landscape and then let the audience sit with that or project onto that. I mean, the horses were like that after the barn scene at the end and the cigarette scene. There is no real cerebral reason to cut to those horses. <laughs> uh-huh. but, they, but they just had such a emotional power. They just put you in this exact right headspace. There's something abstract about them. You couldn't quite figure out what you're looking at for a second. And then you're looking into these eyes, but you really have no idea what they're thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also like a bit of a lyrical dance, allowing the audience to really digest what's just happened, but also hopefully maintain that sense of tension and feeling that was in that previous scene. So it's kind of... sure. Well, I mean, that scene comes right after one of the climatic barn scenes with Peter and Phil, and you sort of leave it where you don't know what happened that evening. It's almost as if the horses know, but we don't. They have the knowledge, they have the secrets, they know the mystery of what happened. And so, yes, emotionally, it connects, even though it doesn't quite make sense that we're going to cut to horses here. But there is a emotional subtextual connection, yeah. which is very cool. Jane's so awesome to work with in that way. She's so excited about those kind of discoveries. The landscapes feel almost like another character. There's power to them. And you really get a sense of the loneliness of these characters and desperation from these landscapes. We always wanted it to never be just like a great shot. It kind of always had to have a much deeper resonance emotionally. It was so much about feeling and, and grandeur too. We really wanted this story to feel epic, even though it's actually a very kind of intimate human story. There's a grandness to an opera to it, mm-hmm. which was really important. Well, a, a scene that that reminds me of is when Rose teaches George to dance the beauty behind them with the scale of the mountains. And and those mountains have a grandness to them that's very different from the ranch. The ranch is not quite so majestic. It's a little bit more dry and hilly. And that dance has such power because you feel like George has been holding so much emotion in. And so when she teaches him to dance in this location, when he tears up, you just feel so much because this is what he's been waiting for for all these years that he's been abused by Phil. He finally has this release. Right at the end of that sequence, there's a little drone helicopter shot of them hugging like a bride and groom on top of a wedding cake with this incredible vista behind them. You spoke a little bit to the music, and I feel like the music is very powerful. And every time we go to it, it really made me feel a lot. And it almost does feel like another character that's in play. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's obviously it's Johnny Greenwood, and it's incredibly beautiful to begin with. But we, we never cut with any other music other than the actual score of this movie. Mm. Johnny worked in a way where he scored to conversations with Jane and the script. They talked about the film and the feeling and the tone of it. We essentially got, I think it was like 35 views on the first week of the edit. And I'd say 90% of the music in the film came from that first batch. But it was like cutting another character in a film. 
we listen to it kind of similar to watching daily, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. we'd, just make, we'd make notes and we'd go, oh, okay, cool. Let's get this kind of thing and this kind of thing. But we were doing it while doing the first pass of the movie. So it was kind of, you know, some things we go, okay, this that's perfect for here. And that was an easy one. And then others, you know, the first time you'd hear it, you go, okay, I'm not sure where this goes, but, you know, slowly you discover that that's got a feeling and you kind of pair it with this. And it was a really incredibly organic process. And it was just about reacting going okay i think we need something here but we're also trying not to overuse music and kind of build it up the same way the film slowly tightens and tightens and tightens Uh we were kind of trying to do the same thing with the score and not just throw it in the mix and just adding too many ingredients we don't really score scenes in the first two-thirds of the movie we don't really underscore anything there's a lot of it was about connecting Mm. and finding ways to take an emotion and then bring in a piece that supported that and took you into the next sequence or scene with that feeling still resonating. And then by the end, which was actually written in the script, the two barn scenes, the climax of the film, was all written in the script to have score. So that was kind of the first time we really like underscore a dialogue Mm. scene and really like turn it up to 10. <laughs> well, I, I think that that might also be one of the reasons why the music has such resonance. You use it in these transitional areas so it can play nice and strong and it's not layered underneath dialogue. So it has a lot of punch. It's almost like an exclamation point. Exactly, to yeah. certain scenes. I also love what you're saying about Greenwood having composed this stuff from the script and from conversations, because I do feel like that can be a really effective way to score. I, I've had that happen on a few different films, and if you're able to do it, it's just so helpful, because uh, then you're not grabbing temp music and then putting somebody else's music behind it. It's specifically for this environment and these characters. Totally. I've done one other film like that. It's just such a beautiful way to work because all the music's yours. You never have to try to match something that isn't, isn't yours or have multiple artists and different tones from different movies kind of competing in the cut for so long and then trying to bring it all together at the end without really knowing exactly what effect that's going to have and maybe not having the time to come back and explore. So... I found it incredibly helpful here and also just like so fun to know that like Mm -hmm. something great comes in, it's actually yours and you can keep it. (laughs) (laughs) There's this transition that I just love when Peter's in the kitchen and his mother's trying to communicate after the flower's been burned and he just exits the hotel and you just like, what's he going to do? Is he going to powder or destroy something? And then you cut outside to this wide shot and he's got this hula hoop, and it was just brilliant. I loved that transition. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that one too. I mean, that was weird because that wasn't in the script. That was something that Jane saw someone hula hooping, I think. Maybe it was actually Cody in between tapes, and she was just like, that's amazing. I need to shoot that. And then when we got it, it was instantly like, wow. There's a humor to it, which I think Peter is actually a humorous character. There's a lightness to him, which is kind of great. It's like angry hula hooping. <laughs> and I love playing with the timings of those kind of things to have the most impact, those kind of smash cuts or whatever you'd call them. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. The way that you sort of held on the previous scene and then cut to that, it had a lot of impact. Yeah, yeah, that's always so, so much fun. You don't get to play with that stuff very often. So when you do, you got to make the most of it. <laughs> Another scene, having a little bit of insight to fill 
Benedict's character was right after that, where you have the bar scene and everyone's dancing and drinking. Most of that scene is played on a close-up of Phil, and he's just staring at everyone. He's not participating. He's just staring. And it's really fascinating to have played it on him mostly. That's an interesting one, actually. That was There was a whole other section of that scene. We just had that one moment of Phil alone. We were like, this is the only piece of this scene we needed, but actually a really difficult comp and the affection <laughs> to, to make, to <laughs> to, make that to work. To be able to create him in that space. Yeah, and alone for that long without anyone walking in and to have enough people around him. And Jane had actually done a lot of comp work, so we'd almost abandoned it. And I was like, I'm pretty sure I can get this to work. Just give me like 10 minutes to do a really rough kind of mat. <laughs> uh-huh. We managed to get it to work and then Jay Hawkins from VFX kind of did a much better version. But yeah, it was all about just showing that even amongst these boys who revere him, he's not like them. He doesn't fit in. He was brought up as a rich kid who uh, was Phi yeah. Beta Kappa. Uh, yeah. And we find you know, just that- these little clues that you realize, oh, he's actually quite a different person than these people, but he wants everybody to think that he is one of them. Yeah, the quintessential cowboy rancher. But yeah, he's actually studied the classics. That felt really important, but it also felt like it could only be a small beat. The first assemble of that kind of went on for another minute with some dialogue and some more dialogue, and it just felt like it's a very simple idea, and we should be able to tell this really simply, and we managed to find a way with some like trickery. I think it's really interesting because if it had the dialogue, I think it would be a lot less powerful. It is simple and yet you feel a lot. And it reminds me a little bit of something that Jane had said where she had written a bunch of dialogue for the climax between Phil and Peter when they're in the barn. There's a lot of sexual tension and you're you're not yeah. sure what's going to happen. And apparently she had written a lot of dialogue and Benedict said, I'm not reading this. Yeah. And she had been unsure about it herself. She wasn't confident in all the dialogue. So she said, OK, you don't have to read all this, mm-hmm. but please say the word naked and <laughs> please, please say a few different things. And I think by having less dialogue, it has a lot more power, it becomes more emotional. Yeah, that happened on the day. I remember that scene reading it. I mean, it wasn't incredibly dialogue heavy, but it, there was a lot more. And then I got the dailies in. And I was like, oh, OK, this is great that all these lines are gone. Like you could instantly see that, okay, this is going to work. And then when we were cutting it, the few things Benedict did say, we cut them down again. So, (laughs) I mean, I love that scene. It kind of brings everything in the film together in this kind of amazingly hypnotic, sensual, tense (laughs) way. Mm -hmm. It was all in their chemistry and cutting between these looks. It It was really about like that moment before a kiss and just try to extend that and extend that as long as you could. And there's also mm-hmm. a lovely dance that's happening in that scene where Peter's actually taking the power in the relationship. By the end of it, it's all on Peter and we stay on Peter for a really long time for that final shot and uh, we're not going to Phil anymore, whereas all the other dialogue scenes we cut with Phil and Peter, mainly on Phil, and Phil's really driving the first two dialogue scenes. So it's kind of this beautiful shift that happens through that scene. That was really essentially cutting a dialogue scene without dialogue. (laughs) Mm. It was 
all in these little glances and we actually just watched the dailies completely silent and just watched it for the actual expression. We had lots of good stuff to choose out of, obviously, but there was just something incredibly powerful about this one look where there's an uncertainty creeping in. It just had so much detail, this little glance. <laughs> there's mm-hmm. so many emotions in it. There's like longing and confusion and maybe a sense of a little bit of fear creeping in as well. Like, what? where is this going? <laughs> yeah, so. and it's interesting the way that Peter does take over because the scene starts with... Phil doing something very dramatic, which is putting his hand on the back of Peter's Mm -hmm. neck. I heard Jane say that a choreographer was talking to her about how that's a dance move. And you feel like Phil's got Peter in his web. Then Peter starts putting Phil back on his heels. He starts becoming much more of the aggressor in some ways. And we're ending with Peter taking the cigarette and smoking it and giving it to Phil, it's like, who's playing who? Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, that scene was so fun to cut. And, you know, there's so much in that scene. There's all this symbolic rope braiding as well, where it's (laughs) actually quite sexual, um, you know, which Jane is great with and isn't shy at all. (laughs) Uh Yeah, Um, and the hands going into the water to... wet the rope yeah and then there's the threads as well which kind of feels like a marionette being played with like these four streams of rawhide so so much of the language that we've built throughout the film kind of comes into play there while all this is going down as well which i felt like was such a fun space to try to create a really tense emotional climactic scene with yeah it's It's like a a gunfight yeah super happy with the way it turned out obviously Another scene that I thought was like a dance and I just thought it was beautifully edited is when George comes home after being gone for the evening and Phil's upstairs and George is downstairs. Phil, as he talks, slowly moves all the way down only for George to get up the minute Phil arrives at the bottom (laughs) and leave and go upstairs. Yeah, I mean, it was just one of those great tense dialogue scenes where, again, George is really not doing very much. (laughs) It's just kind of of letting it slide. But Jesse Plant's, you know, a way of putting so much detail into not very much in an emotional sense. That's actually made up from a lot of different takes. Quite often in dialogue scene, you might have a great take that dominates most of it. But we really worked in an incredibly detailed way and it was really also just about keeping the distance. We you really definitely felt the space. Just about every dialogue scene in this film is tense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Except maybe a couple between George and Rose. But every time Phil's talking, it's, it's usually bad. <laughs> 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 Until you get to the end. But even then, it's still tense for a different reason. So it's just about finding that rhythm and finding that tension. Sure. Tell That's me good. a little bit about the chapter breaks. Essentially, the way the chapters work in this film is they are literary chapters in a, in a sense, so it's a nod to the original material where the story came from. But also, like, each chapter is essentially like weaving a new character into the story, and that's kind mm-hmm. of the way we were looking at it. And it just felt like we needed more of a signal to the audience to accept that now we're going to be with Rose and this is going to be Rose's story for a little while, and then the next one's mm. Pete arrives, and now we're with Pete for a little while. So it's kind of really brave structure for a film to take that risk and it felt like those chapters really 
gave us something concrete to go bring that thread together of each character, essentially. So when you were cutting it, when a new chapter started, would you do it from the point of view of Rose or would you cut from the point of view of Peter, depending on what this new chapter was speaking to? Yeah, I mean, that was kind of how it was written. It just wasn't delineated in that way. There was a very tricky balance on how far you could go with a new character. We always knew it had to be Phil's film, so you could Mm -hmm. only get away with so much. There's a whole bunch of scenes at the start of Pete's chapter that are gone, you know. Mm. And a lot of it had to do with tension as well, because if you went too far in one direction, you just feel the whole tension of Phil's presence just start to dissipate, and you'd kind of have to build up from scratch all over again because he's kind of disappeared, essentially, and his threat has disappeared. So it was really about calibrating Pete's a central figure of the second half of the film, essentially. We need just enough where the audience can get into him and reconnect with him, but not so much that we start to disconnect with Phil. When we finally got that right, that was the screening where we went. Okay, we've got a film. Mm. (laughs) Sure. Um, Pete's such an interesting character because for a while you see him through the point of view of Phil and then he finds the bunny rabbit and you think, oh, how cute. And then the reveal (laughs) of when he's dissecting the rabbit is just like, oh, (laughs) there's a lot more to this person. Totally. There was an interesting thing we did all the way through and it was kind of half consciously and half subconsciously. We'd play reveals really late We'd always try to be a few steps ahead of the audience. Like when we reveal that Pete's actually dissecting the bunny rabbit, we play it all on Lola first. So Lola has a full moment to react to it. And the audience is like a beat behind, whereas it was kind of shot to be a reveal. Mm. Um, And then Lola would react and walk out. You withheld some of the information to get more impact. We could feel that it just wasn't right for the film because the film is holding so much back from the audience and it just felt like those kind of moments played in a certain way. Just They didn't feel right for the movie. They felt a bit cheesy or something. Sure, because it could just be your typical genre horror moment and playing it off of Lola, well, what she's so horrified by. And then he's so casual about it that it becomes much more of a character study. Exactly, Uh, exactly, yeah. This kid's kind of strange. (laughs) Yeah, he's kind of strange. He rides out through the mountains for a long time to find this dead cow. This is part of his studies, but there's something a little off about him. Not every doctor would would do something like this. So. <laughs> no, he's a peculiar kid. Actually, we do a similar thing with the blood on the grass when Phil cuts his hand towards the end when they're actually getting the other bunny rabbit and Pete's put it out of its misery, as Phil says. We play the blood dripping onto the grass as an image before we actually see where the blood's coming from. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like it became kind of a bit of a motif. It's also there's something really interesting about an image like that on its own kind of just stays with you in a different way when it's not explained or something. It's just kind of like a (laughs) visceral kind of way of playing it. Interesting. That was a really powerful scene where they're out there by themselves, both Phil and Peter. There's all this tension because you know certain things about Phil and you're assuming that Peter is the same way. And then they start tormenting the rabbit and the rabbit becomes almost a metaphor for Rose because at this point she's become such a victim to Phil's cruelty 
I was almost feeling like, oh, wait, Phil is trying to enlist Peter in diabolical plans, maybe towards Rose. Yeah, the whole film is in that scene. Like the whole film is in that little sequence. This was kind of the joy of this film as an editor. The ambiguity is the tension. Not Mm -hmm. knowing is actually where the tension comes from, which is so rare. Like what's Phil planning for all of these characters? And then is Pete actually falling for this guy and vice versa? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So there's so much going on. It's just so fun to lead the audience one way and then slowly shift them in a different direction. Yeah, I almost feel like you and Jane are are moving chess pieces, trying to not let the audience understand how you're going to get to checkmate. What maneuvers are, yeah. (laughs) Totally. And with the cut was very much like that. We'd kind of go, oh, this dialogue scene, it's kind of leaning too far in one direction. Especially all the stuff between Pete and Phil, that really took a lot of calibration. The first exchange where Pete gets to sit on the saddle for the first time and Phil tells him, sitting there, you'll learn all about horse riding and then says that saddle belonged to Bronco Henry. And it's kind of like such a weird exchange and they're kind of coming together, but they also have a little breakup in the middle of it. Then Phil insults Peter again. It's kind of like, and then Peter kind of brings Phil back in. It's just all this kind of crazy back and forth. Early on, it felt too sweet, then it felt too rough. So it was just about really like finding a balance where you could read it in a few different ways without us pushing you too far in one direction. Sure, it's so delicate. And I feel like a lot of it's informed by Phil's disdain for Peter early on until Peter learns a little bit more about Phil and who he actually is. I love when Peter talks about how his father said he was too strong and Phil thinks that's ridiculous. There's certain little clues that Peter is a very strong. When Phil goes from being very critical of Peter to suddenly calling Peter over, rather than Peter being afraid, Peter walks right to him. This doesn't seem like a shy kid. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's the strong one from the beginning, really. He's incredibly resilient. But yeah, he's viewed in this world of men as, as a weakling. And then <laughs> Rose is, is almost too fragile for this world. That whole chapter was really interesting, too, because she goes from dancing on the hilltops with George, locking Phil out of their room, running around like little quiet mice. And I love how you Mm. cut that scene, playing so much of it on Phil's face, growing more and more angry as you hear sounds. But then once that whole scene with the piano and the banjo happens, Phil's found a way to really bring uh, any confidence that Rose might have to its knees. It's the moment where he kind of silences her, a demonstration of superiority, both within the place, but also through his artistry and his skill. And this is not her world. Like, she's not from that class of rich people, the governors coming around. She's outside of her comfort zone already, and Phil pushes her over the edge. And that scene with the governor was great. It looks like she's going to throw up the whole time. And everything's been leading up to her playing the piano. And yet she knows because Phil is not there, he might make fun of her at any moment yeah. if she were to play. So there's so much tension in that in that party scene. Totally, yeah. And, that, and a lot of that <clears throat> tension, yeah, is, comes out of what's come before. We cut that scene to be maybe too tense at one stage, like through the middle, because we had a bunch of other material of Rose front on over the piano and 
we ended up pulling it back because essentially we went too far in the middle. By the time Phil came in, the climax of the scene had happened in the middle of the scene rather than Phil's entry. And mm. So it was a really interesting scene to get right because you can really turn that up. <laughs> and also the crowd watching, you could extend that even longer, but you just instantly feel that by the time Phil got there, the humiliation's already happened. Mm. Like we can't take it any further. Bit of a discovery to realise Phil needs to put the nail in the coffin here. Phil just needed to be the key to everything. <laughs> it was always mm-hmm. about Phil. And without that, things just didn't land in the right way. It's a constant reminder that Phil's at the centre of this and everything needs to revolve around him. Yeah, I mean, when uh, George goes over and tries to tell Phil that he has to bathe for the party, he just doesn't want to say anything because he's so afraid of him. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I think that that's part of why it is so much about Phil is because... Phil is pulling the strings on all these people. And if Phil is not in charge and not in control, he acts out and it's not pleasant. No, totally. Everyone's walking on eggshells around Phil and no one wants to rock up the boat. Phil's designed his life essentially in a way that keeps him secure. He doesn't want any ripples and you can feel that anytime there is a ripple, the ramifications for both everyone else and him psychologically are big. (laughs) Sure. So, I mean, that's his way of controlling the world around him is to not let it become out of control and change. Well, the fact that he's also sort of stuck in the past, all he wants to talk about is the good old days. Yeah, and it's an interesting time of film set as well because the West is changing and cars are coming in and he's not into any of that stuff. The whole world's shifting around him, which is an interesting, deeper (laughs) look at the time period. Sure, the West is disappearing and Phil is becoming a dinosaur with it. He surrounds himself with these ranch hands who, if they knew more about him, they would destroy him, but he keeps them close so that they become his protection. Exactly. There was something that Jane said that I just thought was so interesting, which was giving trust to the experiment, being brave enough to fail and failing enough to discover magic. And I was wondering if you had anything to say about that. That's the edit. (laughs) That is the editing process. And uh, editing with Jane, you know, it's like we're not afraid to try any single thing. And we had such a great working relationship. There was total freedom and we just would laugh a lot and have a great Mm -hmm. time. And I know Jane has said to me before that, When she's in that kind of space, that's when she's at her best creatively. And it was kind of always about never letting the pressure come in and just, yeah, letting ideas come up. And, you know, we were doing that right till the end. Like we never ran out of things to try except Mm -hmm. like right at at the very end. It's all about not being scared of trying anything and failing. (laughs) And and (laughs) And feeling like you have a partner and a director who you don't feel is going to judge you for doing something that might not work. I mean, to the... Yeah, to the extent where I even like went, just give me a sec. I just want to try something just to get it out of my head. And I just like put a very long dissolve in, which I'm kind of quite fond of long dissolves. <laughs> but knew it was totally the wrong thing, but it was in my head. So I just had to get it out and see it. And then, you know, and then we just moved on. <laughs> so it was kind of, yeah, it was a really incredible safe place to just literally try anything and we there are a lot of big changes from the script to the cut and I feel like if we weren't in that zone of being playful and experimenting like a lot of those discoveries wouldn't have come because sometimes you fail but you learn something absolutely (laughs) and then that leads to the discovery and I'm so glad we ended up getting to spend so much time together actually in a room during a pandemic 
that kind of alchemy that happens in that room, that chemistry kind of leads to so many discoveries and it's so much harder to do that over zoom. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I loved the movie. I loved the way that you edited it. I just thought it's such a powerful, interesting film. So thank you so much for talking to me. Oh, thanks for taking the time. Appreciate it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. We really appreciate it. It's just a man.